the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. February 12th, 2021. We start this Friday today noting two things. Almost everyone knows it's Valentine's Day coming up, so a very happy Valentine's to you all. In the religious context, which is probably the best place to start when speaking of love, I once asked a rabbi what it is God wants more than anything else. He said the hardest thing there is to get along with others, to love them. The famous Rabbi Hillel in Judaism said if he had to sum up the entire five books of Moses, the Torah, in one line, it would be what is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this or commentary. Go and study it. Of course, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you see an overlapping there, don't you? C.S. Lewis tells us in the opening to his book of essays on the four loves that God is love. And I think if you ask most Christian ministers if there is one summation of the Bible, one overarching message, it is just that, love. What are the four loves as C.S. Lewis gives them to us? Affection, or storge, as the Greeks had it, the humblest and most widely diffused of love, he says. Then we have friendship, or phylos. Then comes eros, or romantic love. Then we have what Lewis calls charity, also known as agape. It is easy to love God. Excuse me. Is it easy to love God, he asks? It is for those who do it. But for a moment, I should like to speak of a unification of several of these, which is not talked about enough, perhaps today, not in contexts like we have today, and that's love of country, perhaps a quintessence or a fifth love. Lewis does not easily categorize that kind of love, the love of country, which is why I think of it as the unification of loves. He does, however, write this, quote, Those who would reject patriotism entirely do not seem to have considered what will certainly step has already begun to step in its place. For a long time yet, or perhaps forever, nations will live in danger. Rulers must somehow nerve their subjects to defend them, or at least to prepare for their defense. Where the sentiment of patriotism has been destroyed, this can be done only by presenting every international conflict in a purely ethical light. If people will spend neither sweat nor blood for their country, they must be made to feel that they are spending them for justice or civilization or humanity, close quote. America cures this problem by making our love of country, our patriotism, not only a love for our fellow man, all being created equal, and that phrase having been written in Philadelphia, the city, literally, of brotherly love, Philadelphia, but also, to use Lewis's construction, in service to justice, civilization, and humanity. And no country founded on natural rights as we were that respects man as man and puts us all on an equal footing by putting us all on a footing of equality below God can abandon justice, civilization, or humanity. Which is why so many of us think of our founding as the best regime. The wedding on all that was given to us from revelation and reason, what we speak of when we talk of the combination of Jerusalem and Athens. As Professor Thomas Pengel has rightly said, <clears throat> quote, the Declaration 
by which Americans made themselves independent marked the birth of the first nation in history, grounded explicitly not on tradition or loyalty to tradition, but on an appeal to abstract, universal, and philosophical principles of political right. Close quote. Harry Jaffa, in his essay, The American Founding is the Best Regime, puts it this way, the preamble of the Constitution crowns its enumeration of the ends of the Constitution by declaring its purpose as to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. No words of the Constitution reveal the intention of the Constitution more profoundly than these. The preamble is the statement of the Constitution's purpose, and this culminating purpose embraces and transcends those that have gone before. Alone among the ends of the Constitution to secure liberty is called to secure a blessing. What is a blessing is what is good in the eyes of God. It is a good whose possession by the common understanding of mankind belongs properly only to those who deserve it. We remember that the final paragraph of the Declaration of Independence appeals to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. It is by the authority of the good people of these colonies that independence is declared. It is because of this assurance of their rectitude that this good people and their representatives placed a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We commonly call blessed those who enjoy in great measure wealth and health and freedom. And so it is that men pray for these things. Just so, no other foundation or founding so wonderfully provides these, which is why Abraham Lincoln, whose birthday it is today, could say this about patriotism or love of country, as he said it in his eulogy of Henry Clay. He said, Mr. Clay's predominant sentiment from first to last was a deep devotion to the cause of human liberty, a strong sympathy with the oppressed everywhere, and an ardent wish for their elevation. With him, this was a primary and all-controlling passion. Subsidiary to this was the conduct of his whole life. He loved his country partly because it was his own country, but mostly because it was a free country. And he burned with a zeal for its advancement, prosperity, and glory because he saw in such the advancement, prosperity, and glory of human liberty, human right, and human nature. He desired the prosperity of his countrymen partly because they were his countrymen, but chiefly to show to the world that free men could be prosperous, close quote. Just so. Do we not begin now to see two different tides flowing in this country, one which embraces and re represents all of that, and one that thinks such a sentiment is quaint at best or ignorant at worst? And if ignorant, in need of reteaching, consciousness raising. There are those, in other words, who think we are the last best hope of earth, as Lincoln put it, or the last best hope of mankind on earth, as Reagan put it. And there are those that think we are, believe it or not, rotten to the core, or from the core, responsible for the worst ills of humanity. There are those, we, who try to teach how great we are. There are those who try to teach how bad we are. It must all start with a certain view of man, though, shouldn't it? A natural view, that man is imperfect. And once one knows this, then a measurement of imperfections is required, no? But to the politically correct, the answer is no. Again, to borrow from Dr. Jaffa, since in our age of relativism we do not know what is right or wrong, we show our sophistication 
by patronizing indifferently the different concepts of right and wrong as they manifest themselves in different cultures or different ways of life. Unfortunately, some cultures celebrate human sacrifice, sute, cannibalism, and slavery. So political correctness arbitrarily tells us we are no better than any of that, and morality becomes simply a matter of what you prefer or like. So how do we instill a love of country, this country, and reclaim patriotism as a standard benchmark that will stop, isolate, shame even those who would teach otherwise? This is what takes me to the second thing I want to note today. This Valentine's Day weekend also leads us to the federal holiday known as Washington Birthday this weekend and Monday, or President's Day in the modern parlance. Another form of relativism, isn't it? All presidents being equal. Andrew Johnson as much as Abraham Lincoln, I suppose. Gerald Ford as much as Ronald Reagan, I suppose. But that is all a corruption, a relativism and a corruption. Not only of history, but of the very point of Washington's birthday in the first place. For by celebrating him, by studying him, one gets all the classic virtues that help instill a great love of this country. But of course, we don't study him anymore, do we? So we have so few characters in our history children can look up to or be taught to esteem, especially if we take down statues and monuments to them or destroy them or take their names off schools. It's a tactic and it's a deliberate one. And thus we arrive at the very serious problem of an abandonment of affections from our own country, a downgrading, if not dismissal, of love of country, this country, starting in the schools but emanating outward almost naturally in some odd adherence to a noble lie. I ask, how many of your children can tell you anything about George Washington? They may know he owned slaves, I suppose. Do they know he inherited them at the young age of 11 and that he freed them? Do they know in his will elderly enslaved people or those who were too sick to work were to be supported by his estate in perpetuity? They don't. Nor do they know his other virtues, which I'll speak about more later. But for today, heading into the Washington's birthday weekend, do something good about love, especially given it being commenced on a day dedicated to it. Do something good about love of country and patriotism. Read why Ronald Reagan wanted the study of American history to be his last message from the White House by reading it as his farewell address. Or read some Lincoln or read some Washington, especially what others said about him. After all, as David McCullough reminds us, you cannot teach any more than you can know what you do not love. I'm Seth Leaps. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, your show Friday, Open Lines Friday, 602-508-0960. Ask me anything you want about anything. I just don't do medical or legal or accounting advice. But I can tell you how to improve your health, energy, and boost your immunity. Parts of the show are brought to you by the best product for doing that. That's Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. One daily dose has 31 different fruits and veggies in it, giving you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. Great stuff. Mango, pineapple, papaya, blueberries, onion, wheatgrass, spinach, pepper, cayenne pepper. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients in one daily dose of Balance of Nature's vegetarian capsules. Just fantastic. 
And they have a great deal right now. 35% off and free shipping from any new on any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Check them out at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE or give them a call at 800-246-8751. Again, make sure to use discount code BALANCE. I'm going to get into the impeachment stuff here in just a moment. Before we do, well, actually, you want to talk about it? Let's go right to it. Ryan's in Mesa. Hi, Ryan. All right. Hold on one second. Hello? Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fine, sir. Thank you for calling. Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, have you ever seen the Truman Show, you know, where the guy parachutes yeah. in? Yeah. He's so happy to be on the Truman sh- Show. He says, I'm on the Truman Show. I feel like that with, um, when I'm on your show. That's nice. Uh, Thank you. I, appre- I love your show, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, sound reason uh, all around. So appreciate that. And my thoughts here, hopefully... Uh, they hopefully they sound reasonable because uh, you know in today's day and age you want to just sound reasonable and you want it, uh, the other side to to listen to this and my thought is that um, the democratic uh, approach to the impeachment is political fraud in the sense that in their presentation they're they're omitting and concealing the material and relevant facts. Uh, of the of Trump's comments that it was peaceable, mm-hmm. it took peaceful, and that is an, an omission, and it appears intentional mm-hmm. for their for their own political gain, mm-hmm. and, and that to me can, constitutes fraud. Mm-hmm. And and then the the second piece that I just wanted to mention was that the moment that they did anything beyond peaceful, it had nothing to do with Trump. Mm-mm. So get away from your emotional conjectures and lack of evidence, because if they had anything similar to to this, they would be all over it. Yeah, I I think I was uh, trying to make a, a point of on this, uh, Ryan, yesterday that when you look at the evidence that they amassed and displayed, the Democrats, the uh, impeachment managers. I mean, it was it was evidence of a lot of violence and a lot of mob activity, the storming of the Capitol, the breaching of the Capitol. And it was it was rough to watch. It was emotionally uh, pulling on all our heartstrings um, and passions. And it my, my analogy is it was like describing or showing videos or, you know, uh, uh, scenery of a fire burning down a house describing the arson, but they did not connect it to an arsonist. They didn't make the case that it was caused by President Trump. Follow my logic here. They know they cannot. So what they have done is what's known in um, philosophy or uh, uh uh, rhetoric as argument it's a, it's an argument it's an argument of fallacy known as the argument ad misericordiam or argument to pity that is to say if you make f- someone feel so bad if you appeal to such emotion um that it can overcome reason you use the word reason they are using emotion to overcome reason and this enters the territory of my truth versus the truth right but if you can see something is so horrific, you're obviously um, going to work with us or 
um, agree with us that it has to be blamed on someone, and that someone is President Trump. Now, escaping yeah, all of the, this— not the people that committed— Well, that's the, the next act. point. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Escaping all this is the fact— that there have been uh, close to hundred somewhere around 130 arrests right now. What of mm-hmm. that? What of that? Why are they not mm-hmm. the guilty party? And exactly. be, be, and of course they are. And and where is the smoking gun? You've used to hear of smoking guns in impeachment trials. Remember, you've heard about it in the Watergate. You yep. heard about it. Yep. In uh, Clinton Gate and you or Lewinsky Gate, I guess it's called, and you heard about it with the first Trump impeachment, which was the call to the Ukrainian uh, president. They called that the smoking gun. Where's the smoking gun here? Where is the one sentence where he says breach the Capitol or act violently? They don't have it. What they it's have the is him saying fight like hell. Thing. Sorry, go ahead. What? Oh, I, I apologize. No, yeah, no, no. It's okay. I'm I'm right with you. The and how many other uh, of the uh, the Democrat um, senators or House representatives have used that? Obviously, well, we're gonna we're gonna get and, into and that. N- we're gonna get not, into that. Not only yeah, not the- only that, but if if his if all of his rallies had been up until that point peaceful, why couldn't he also presume that they are going to follow his recommendation for peaceful? Well, I think know? I think. His attorney, um, I think this was Schoen's work, did a really good job on that point, and I'm going to play some of that audio in a little bit. I think they did a great job. Now, you and I also live in reality and know that no matter how good of a job the attorneys did, even if he had Abraham Lincoln as his attorney, the vote would still be what the vote is going to be. You know why? Because the Democrats are acting out of invincible ignorance. There's this line, William Paley, have you ever heard this? There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. That's what the Democrats have given us, contempt prior to investigation, guilt prior to investigation. That Wow. When when you hear truth, it really – you know that it's true, and that that right there – it, it sums it up, and and it presents a scenario where anybody, if they can do that to Trump, they can do that to anybody and accuse of, us of anything they want to. And it, and it feels almost like I read a good book recently called um, uh, "A Night Divided," where you know the Stasi are, is separating uh, West and, and uh, East Germany with a uh, barbed wire fence, and it is, it, it's just, it feels it's like... It's chilling what's going true. on, and what we used to have is, bring me the man and I'll show you the crime. Now we have, I'll show you the crime and we'll now find our man, but yeah. without evidence, contempt prior to investigation. You and I are on the exact same page, Ryan, exact same Thank page. You. God Thank bless you, Thank you so you, much sir. for the time. You bet. Thanks it. for your kind words and your call. That's from the uh, San Quentin album, if I'm not mistaken. Open lines Friday, 602-508-0960. Jeff's in Glendale. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Seth. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Of course. Um, so I, I don't do a lot of uh, – here's my thing. I don't do a lot of social media. I've kind of given up on it. But uh, I do do a little bit 
um, you know, um, and uh, and lately what I've been seeing is a lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats, uh, I try to have discussions with them, and it doesn't usually go well, and when I point out that the Democrats were the party of slavery and the party of Ku Klux Klan and whatnot, um, it seems like a lot of people, especially younger people, are kind of throwing at me this revisionist history kind of thing about the, the party switching polarity in the 30s. Uh, and I usually get a quote given to me by William uh, Jennings Bryant, and honestly I can't remember what it was, but um, have you heard anything about this? Well, I have heard over the years that the Republicans became the party of the racists and that the Democrats uh, became the party of integration. But I didn't know that they were putting it into the 1930s. Um, I thought usually they cast it around the 1960s. What they probably are aiming at here in the 1930s is that Franklin Roosevelt um, did so uh, did so much uh, for um, you know the the underclass and the poor in his New Deal that he was able to peel away from the Republicans their traditional support from African Americans, but as recently as 1960, Richard Nixon was getting over 30 percent of the black vote. What killed it, really, was Barry Goldwater's run in 64 because Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act. Now, Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act on libertarian grounds. Barry Goldwater was no racist. He was um, a founder of the NAACP, and he helped desegregate Sky Harbor Airport and the Air National Guard. He was um, as as, as, as enlightened as anyone on race matters. But he voted against the Civil Rights Act because he didn't think government should tell private corporations what to do. And he was concerned about that from a libertarian perspective. What's interesting about that is that there was – there were a lot of votes against the Civil Rights Act of 64 from prominent Democrats, very prominent Democrats – And their opposition to the Civil Rights Act wasn't based on libertarian grounds. It was based on Southern racist sentiments of the Democratic Party that still existed in uh, the South in those years. So I've never really heard that it was the 30s so much as it was the 60s. And, And the Democrats who voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964, it's interesting, a higher percentage of Democrats voted against the Civil Rights Act than Republicans. It wouldn't have passed without the Republicans. It was because of Republicans that it passed. But that killed, in the um, national narrative, that killed the Republican Party with the black vote, Goldwater's candidacy, um, for for obviously many, many years to come. But if you are looking for any proof that the Democratic Party maintained its legacy of Jim Crow – and uh, Confederate sentiments. I don't know how old you are, but in our lifetime, 
the Democratic majority leader of the Senate was a man named Robert Byrd. He was a Democrat, and he was a former leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And Bill Clinton spoke right. at his uh, – eulogized him at his funeral. And Bill Clinton excused that. He said, yes, of course he was a member of the Klan. You had to be to get elected. Oh, really? People will do what people will do, I guess. No, I don't um, – I don't think that there's a Republican that ran for president from 1860 Abraham Lincoln to now that departed from the Republican theories of the 1856 Republican platform. And I think the progressive movement has long been drenched in the politics of race. When you look at the eugenics issues, when you look at the origins of the abortion movement, when you look at race preferences, and yes, of course – when you look at who's the segregationist today. I love doing scholarship here. And uh, Jeff, um, who called a few moments ago, uh, was asking about this idea that the parties kind of switched when it came to racial politics. And um, there's a book on this, which is excellent, and I commend it to you, called Death of a Nation – by Dinesh D'Souza, D-apostrophe-S-O-U-Z-A. He wrote an entire book on that myth. And Prager University, my producer Bill tells me, thank you, Bill, um, had a uh, short lecture on this from a great scholar named uh, Carol Swain, who used to teach at Vanderbilt. And um, you asked, we'll give it to you. Here it is. Once upon a time, every student of history, and that meant pretty much everyone with a high school education, knew this. The Democratic Party was the party of slavery and Jim Crow, and the Republican Party was the party of emancipation and racial integration. Democrats were the Confederacy, and Republicans were the Union. Jim Crow Democrats were dominant in the South, and socially tolerant Republicans were dominant in the North. But then, in the 1960s and 70s, everything supposedly flipped. Suddenly, the Republicans became the racists and the Democrats became the champions of civil rights. Fabricated by left-leaning academic elites and journalists, the story went like this. Republicans couldn't win a national election by appealing to the better nature of the country. They could only win by appealing to the worse. Attributed to Richard Nixon, the media's all-purpose bad guy, this came to be known as the Southern Strategy. It was very simple. Win elections by winning the South. And to win the South, appeal to racists. So the Republicans, the party of Lincoln, were to now be labeled the party of rednecks. But this story of the two parties switching identities is a myth. In fact, it's three myths wrapped into one false narrative. Let's take a brief look at each myth in turn. Myth number one, in order to be competitive in the South... Republicans started to pander to white racists in the 1960s. Fact, Republicans actually became competitive in the South as early as 1928 when Republican Herbert Hoover won over 47% of the South's popular vote against Democrat Al Smith. In 1952, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower won the southern states of Tennessee, Florida, and Virginia. And in 1956, he picked up Louisiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia, too. 
And that was after he supported the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education that desegregated public schools and after he sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock Central High School to enforce integration. Myth number two, Southern Democrats angry with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 switched parties. Fact, of the 21 Democratic senators who opposed the Civil Rights Act, just one became a Republican. The other 20 continued to be elected as Democrats or were replaced by other Democrats. On average, those 20 seats didn't go Republican for another two and a half decades. Myth number three, since the implementation of the Southern strategy, the Republicans have dominated the South. Fact, Richard Nixon, the man who is often credited with creating the Southern strategy, lost the Deep South in 1968. In contrast, Democrat Jimmy Carter nearly swept the region in 1976, 12 years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in 1992, over 28 years later, Democrat Bill Clinton won Georgia, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. The truth is, Republicans didn't hold a majority of Southern congressional seats until 1994, 30 years after the Civil Rights Act. As Kevin Williamson of National Review writes, if Southern rednecks ditched the Democrats because of a civil rights law passed in 1964, it is strange that they waited until the late 1980s and early 1990s to do so. They say things move slower in the South, but not that slow. So what really happened? Why does the South now vote overwhelmingly Republican? Because the South itself has changed. Its values have changed. The racism that once defined it doesn't anymore. Its values today are conservative ones, pro-life, pro-gun, and pro-small government. And here's the proof. Southern whites are far more likely to vote for a black conservative like Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina than a white liberal. In short, history has moved on. Like other regions of the country, the South votes values, not skin color. The myth of the Southern strategy is just the Democrats' excuse for losing the South, and yet another way to smear Republicans with the labor racists. Don't buy it. Yeah, don't I'm buy it, Carol Jeff. Swain. Thank you, Carol Swain. Don't buy it. Thank you, Prager University. It's the South that changed, not the Republican Party. And it was changed by efforts primarily credited to the Republican Party. What did it mean to send in the 101st Airborne? Well, it was done by Dwight Eisenhower, Republican. Okay, thank you for that uh, question, uh, Jeff. I love it. Dan is in Cave Creek. Hi, Dan. Uh, hi, Seth. Um, yeah, I uh, I had a thought on uh, something that uh, on this impeachment trial that since the uh, Constitution specifies that impeachment uh, is um, is used for removal of a sitting president, therefore, if the Senate convicts Trump, is that not acknowledgement that Trump actually won? <laughs> well, it is a funny it is a funny thing that the bill of indictment against him, the bill of impeachment filed against him, does continually reference him as President Donald John Trump. Um, it's 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 what gives rise to the whole argument about how it's unconstitutional because it's impossible. 
if the punishment of impeachment is twofold, removal of office and potentially barring the the, uh, ability to run again for another office, you miss the first. You simply can't accomplish removal from office. So you've created basically a totem impeachment, a meaningless impeachment, a meaningless conviction, if you will. And that's exactly and precisely why the uh, impeachment defense um, mounted um, their first argument based on the unconstitutionality of what they were engaging in. Um, Is it a tacit admission? Probably not at the end of the day, as the Trump attorneys stated that Joe Biden was the elected president. But, but I do believe that it is a more than tacit violation of the First Amendment to engage in an impeachment over the legal use of free speech. And I'm going to get into some of those examples in just a few moments, um, if you'll bear with me. Also, I have a great scholar on Lincoln coming up, Professor Lucas Morell. He's going to tell us why he still matters on this, his 212th birthday. So don't go away. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Rob, hi, Rob. How are you? Well, hi, Seth. I'm fine. How are you? I'm well, sir. Okay, um, real quick, uh, because we have an engagement later, but um, on this day in 1909, the NAACP was founded. Uh Aha. And equally important, if not more important, on this day in 1973, the release of United States POWs began. Uh, And in 1999, on this day, Bill... Bill Clinton was acquitted on both articles of impeachment, if we care about those things. Um, I wanted to mention... And on this day in 1809? uh, Abe Lincoln was born. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Now, as a a good Lutheran, I have to quote a Martin Luther quote because it's very applicable today. Um, He said, and this is a translation from German, I am much afraid that the universities will prove to be the gates of hell unless they diligently labor to explain the Holy Scriptures and engrave them upon the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place a child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution where men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. How interesting is that? Yeah, I mean, all of our early main and huge... Uh universities were founded, really, on Christian bases. I mean, Harvard's motto, Truth, is an example of that, but they all were, right? And, uh, of course, there were, um, you know, a a lot of universities were founded, uh, of course, by Lutherans. Gettysburg College uh, certainly was, I think, pretty sure. That that would be Valparaiso, a few others. Um, They all were, once upon a time, and they're pretty far from it. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that's so true. Don't but, send your uh, kids okay. anywhere to to a school well, like that now. Much, but mine are in their late 30s, so Good. that's not a problem. Anyway, um, what I really called for, and I mentioned to Bill, was um, I had an epiphany earlier this morning, and we're in the middle of Black History Month, and I thought about it for a moment, and I thought, you know, what this country really needs is an American History Month. And what I did was I sent a, a letter to Debbie Lesko, who, uh, you know, who happened to be, by the way, uh, born and raised in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Now, there's a 
there's an interesting parallel since I was born and raised in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, and she's a great congresswoman from all indications from what I can tell. But I, I wanted to see if, you know, we talk about unifying the country, uh, what greater way to do that than to introduce uh, for her a bill to make a certain month, whether it's July because it's Fourth of July or you know some other time uh, in American. It's history a great month idea. I, it's a fantastic idea. I have a. I, you're, you're welcome to call back if your catered affair ends or starts in time for you to call back. I'm going to run it by a Professor Lucas Morell, who's going to join us in just a moment. He's one of the great Lincoln scholars. I'll, I'll run it by him on air, too, and get his, his take on it. I love it. July's the right month. You nailed it, Rob. Good call. Don't go away. We'll be right back.